Welcome to Trauma-Informed Caring and Essential Conversations podcast, brought to you by the Mid-America Addiction Technology Transfer Center, funded by SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Although funded by SAMHSA, the content on this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of SAMHSA. As we have learned that well-being inspires well-doing, we again encourage you and invite you to pause for a moment and engage in this brief mindfulness practice as we start this episode. Okay, I'm going to ask you to get comfortable in your chair, in your car, wherever it is that you are in the present moment. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and clear your mind. I want you to picture a stream with water just lazily flowing by. All you can see is that stream just flowing past you. As you look more closely at the water, I want you to notice the leaves, the twigs, the fish, the tiny objects of all different sizes and shapes and colorful flowing just continuously going by. I want you to take a moment and kind of really picture that. Now picture yourself standing beside the stream, watching everything coming towards you. Imagine that what you are watching for are your thoughts, wishes, feelings, or sensations, any, any, any kind of thought that you may have. And you're watching that come down the stream. Watch them come down. As they come close to you, Just watch them come and go and get back to watching to see what comes down the stream next. Try not to attach to or push away what you notice on the stream. Just let it come and let it go. I want you to continue this for just a few minutes. When you are ready, open your eyes and bring your attention back to the room. Thank you. I'm Andrea Dalton. And I'm Roxanne Pendleton. And this is Trauma-Informed Caring. On this podcast, we explore varied perspectives and nurture knowledge, inspiring courage for practical, transformative action. And in this particular series of our podcast, we are looking at what is in the soil, what's in our communities that supports resilience, that promotes well-being, and that really creates a more trauma-informed culture all around. We're really excited to have our guest here today, Mindy Davidson. Welcome. Would you tell us a little bit about where you work, what you do, and about you as a person? My name is Mindy Davidson. I work for First Resources Corporation. I am the Director of Behavioral Health um, in Ottumwa, Iowa. We have two substance uh, abuse residential facilities where we treat uh, substances and we practice trauma-informed care in our facilities. Um, I'm also uh, in charge of our outpatient services as well as two behavior intervention programs for youth. So that's what I do for a job. Uh, I am the mother of eight children. Uh, We have born to us children and adopted. I have seven grandchildren. Oh Uh, my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) So 
many to love. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was a foster parent for a little while. Um, I also have a little background, a large background actually in recovery myself, um, for recovery from substances as well as, uh, trauma, domestic violence and, um, a long spectrum of trauma. So that's me in a nutshell. Yeah. So just in that, I can see as I think about kind of the ripples and all the lives touched, you have experience as a mom, as a foster mom, as an adoptive mom, as someone who's been through trauma, as someone who's struggled with your own substance use and someone who cares for others who struggle with substance use and healing from that and recovery. And so I wonder if you could, looking through any of those lenses, mother, daughter, community person, uh, worker in the field, whichever lens you want to choose, where do you see, uh, where are the sources of resilience? And you can speak from your own story and, and tell us a little bit more about that, or you can speak about those you're serving now. Well, if I talk about my own perspective, if that's the most easy for me to talk about is my own. Um, and I believe that resilience started for me when I was very, very young. I had to learn to become resilient to survive a lot of the situations that I was placed in as a child. So um, you have to learn to be resilient. And um, I come from a long line of poverty, trauma, and substance use all together. And so I learned as a young child that, you know, you have to be able to bounce back from those things. You can't let them suck you in or take you down, you know? Yeah. Was there anyone in your early life as a child who gave you hope or encouragement? I'm going to be honest and say no. Um, I had a sixth grade teacher, uh, the only person that I can think of. um, Well, I have my sister too. So I'll talk about the two of them. So um, my sixth grade teacher uh, used to let me um, curl her hair. She knew that I came from um, nothing. I had nothing. um, And she never treated me any different. I was treated differently, I think, by a lot of people because A, I came from a biracial family and B, which in the late 70s, early 80s, um, and B, uh, because I came from a, a family who lived in poverty. Uh, mm-hmm. So between those two things, I think that kind of made me a social, kind of a social outcast, I guess, at a really young age. And my sixth grade teacher was so nice to me. She never treated me any different. She would bring a curling iron to school and let me curl, curl her hair because that's the thing that I really like to do was try to be uh, different in that aspect. Um, mm-hmm. And So she, so that's kind of how she connected to me instead of trying to make me sit at a table and, you know, do things that I really, you know, I think as a child, I had to think about a lot of different things that other children my age didn't. Um, Uh And so there is a TED talk that Nadine Burke does, Mm -hmm. and she talks about when a, like the fight or flight response and how, like when you know, we're used to seeing most normal people, uh, you see a bear once in your lifetime and mm-hmm. you go into fight or flight response. But when the bear comes home every night and that mm-hmm. is activated every, mm-hmm. that fight or flight response is activated every night. That's when the changes happen physically for, for, for you. I think mm-hmm. she knew that. I think my sixth grade teacher knew that mm-hmm. I needed just that few moments where I didn't have to think about anything that was happening in my home life or, or, um, anything else. And just let me curl her hair. And it was, this as simple as that. And then my sister, 
Um, my sister was is seven years older than I am um, and, and went through the same things that I did. But like we were just talking the other day and I said, remember when we went camping um, in our station wagon and like we camped in our station wagon for like six, seven days. She said, that's great that you still think it was camping, Mindy, but we were homeless. Yeah. <laughs> so wow. she tried everything, you know, to make wow. things positive for me. So what an incredible person to have in your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes me think about bring research into it. Cause that's what I do sometimes. <laughs> uh, it makes me think of the research around positive childhood experiences and, you know, they've learned and they are continuing to uncover what those are. But one of those things is having one adult. And that is such a powerful protective factor. Having that one adult who cares about you, who sees you, who maybe understands, like you said, maybe understands. Who lets you curl her hair. Yeah. And <laughs> that is so protective that it, uh, when they when they compare it to like health outcomes later on in life, uh, people who have those positive childhood experiences, it almost like counteracts the adverse childhood experiences. So yes. doesn't I mean, it still has an impact, not that it gets rid of the impact of those experiences, but I mean, I think does exactly what you're talking about here, right? Like it builds that resilience. It builds that capacity so that now, you know, later in life, you're like turning it around and helping other people, which is pretty incredible. You came from poverty. You came from, I'm going to say various layers of trauma. Was that in any way, a driver for you to become a foster mom or to adopt children? Tell us a little bit about that. It actually was. So I will tell you that my children were removed from my care uh, because of my substance use. My children were removed from my care because I was not keeping them safe. So, um, so painful. I had to, yeah by the department of human services. So I had to, I had to work with the department to get my children back. And that's truly when I got clean and sober. Um, I had lost three children already and I did not want to lose my little girls. I know that I definitely, that's one thing I would not probably have survived is losing another set of children. And so I started working in this program called the parent partner program. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or not. Um, it's a program that's through uh, DHS. I got sober. I went to treatment. I got sober. Um, I started working on getting my kids back. My kids got returned to my care. Was So I got a job. It's It was kind of a volunteer type thing, um, but uh, where I was able to go back and help parents who were in the same situation as me, who had just had their children removed to show them what to do to get their kids back home in their care and to be like their sense of hope or inspiration um, to do that. So yeah, that was my driving factor. And then what I saw was, I saw that kids, particularly boys and particularly African-American teenage boys, um, nobody wanted to foster. Um, and they would do app. There was absolutely nothing to not, not at their fault. Um, but they were being sent to like facilities because nobody wanted to allow these children to come to their homes. Mm -hmm. And so we started to kind of, we had a 12 year old boy who lived in our neighborhood who was being removed from his mom. And, um, they, the department came in and we knew him. So I walked up the street and this is really how it all started. <laughs> I walked up the street and I was like, 
calm down, buddy. It's okay. And he's like, it's not okay. I'm going to get locked up and I didn't do anything, you know, right. and he truly didn't. Um, and, and so the, the social worker who knew me from the doing parent partner, she's like, Mindy, would you allow him to come stay with you? And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm going to have to think about that for a second. She's like, well, we really don't have a second. So I didn't have any time to really think about it. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, okay. So he came to stay with us. And then we started working on getting our foster parenting license and things like that. And so that's kind of how it worked. So I was like one of the first people in the state of Iowa to have my children removed and then become a foster parent by the same state who removed my children from my care. What a story of hope. (laughs) That's amazing. That's got to be so inspiring to people who have walked that path or are walking that path right now that what I can get my kids back and I can go on to care for other kids Mm -hmm. and help other parents. That's really, um, it's phenomenal. A little choked (laughs) up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, what about the foster care system. I know sometimes we hear the bad things, but it seems like you have had some experiences where you've been part of the good. I wonder if you could tell us about any of those experiences you've had or the kids that you've fostered, you know, what's going on in that system to help support the resilience of the fostering parents or the parents who've lost the kids to the system or the kids in the system? Is there anything happening there to help build resilience? There is. And I will tell you that one of the biggest things that they're asking of foster, I know in the state of Iowa, so I can't, I can only speak for the state of Iowa. So particularly Wapolo County. (laughs) Um, So, because things are different across the state, but here, one of the things that they try to do, um, and I used to kind of help with this too. I don't really have a lot of time these days, otherwise I'd still be helping. But um, one of the things that they try to do is they try to get foster parents to understand that the goal of foster parenting is not to adopt children. The the goal of foster parenting is to reunite children with their mm-hmm. families. And so your to, your job is to keep children safe and at the same time teach parents how to be parents so that we continue to keep them safe. So, mm-hmm. and when I was a foster parent, um, they would like have me come in and talk to people because I allowed parents to come into my home. Um, and sometimes not all the time you could, you can't always do that because some parents aren't open to that. But I had, like, I had a little girl one time that her mom, all she wanted to do was put her mom, her child to bed at night because, and her child wanted to be put to bed at night. So mm-hmm. she came in every night, gave her daughter a bath and put her to bed. Um, and why wouldn't I let her do that? Why wouldn't I let her do that in a safe in, in environment? And why wouldn't I try to teach her, you know, the skills of being a mother, My job as a foster parent was not just to foster children, but the foster parents as well, foster parent. And so um, my job was to teach them how to come back and be able to be the best parents they could be. Wow. So that is kind of one of the things um, that I think we do differently across the board than that's done different than across the board is the expectation is that you will, that you will not just foster kids, but you will foster parents. Uh, yeah, I think that is an excellent distinctive. Mm-hmm. And when you're working from that viewpoint, you are involved in the whole realm of healing and recovery and support mm-hmm. and building resilience in families, right? Mm-hmm. Which then impacts the community. So would you say, I'm curious, 
you said you had some trauma as a child. I'm wondering who was your role model for being a good parent or did you learn that in the program that you were in or how did that uh, occur? So I'm going to tell you that when my children, my, my kids went to kinship care, they didn't go to like actually into foster care. My kids went to kinship care. My sister took care of them until I could have them back home with me, which was very, very short term. So I want to be really clear that it was very short term that my kids might now my older kids were also in kinship care. And I, I didn't get custody of them back for a long time. And I never got custody of my son back who was nine months old when he was removed from my care. So I never, I never, and those were from my own decisions. So I will tell you that when the department got, when I got involved with the department, my kids had never even had sheets on their beds. And I'm just being very raw and very honest. Um, my kids had never even had sheets on their beds. We came from a very, very poor family, um, very poverty at the, at the highest level. Right. And so um, to be honest, the department, the department taught me um, how to, uh, my worker called me every day um, and told me how much she um, was proud of me for making sure that my kids were at school on time. She called me at like 8.15 and would say, are the kids at school? And I'd say, yeah, they're at school. And she'd say, okay, you've made it five days now in a row, an entire week that your kids have made it to school on time. You know, I mean, just those little things that they go out of their way to do. Um, and still to this day, I work with those same workers every day. Um, and so they go out of their way to make you feel like they truly care about your family, um, and whether you're, and that they want your family to be together. They're not trying to take your kids away from you or, you know what I mean? They go the extra mile to let you know, um, they are, they're encouraging, um, great skill, our great, um, parenting skills and like, it's just a great system that we have going on there. So it was my worker, honestly, and my treatment provider. My treatment provider was another person who truly believed in me. I really hear several of the principles of trauma-informed care popping up in what you're saying. Um, yeah. You know, there's empowerment for sure, right? Um, being able to have that ongoing, I don't know, cheerleader almost, right? Like mm -hmm. just that support, that person who says, I believe in you and I see you doing it. Like that's so impactful. And then I also heard that you were talking about choice, like offering people the opportunity to come put their kids to bed, you know, give them a bath and put them to bed in their foster placement. Like, I don't, I don't feel like that happens a lot of places um, that I'm aware of, but uh, that's just an, an incredible, that's, that's choice and collaboration, collaboration. Um, and being able to work you know, together with like the whole system in order to improve those um, situations for families. And then like Roxanne said, it, it does extend into the communities too. And, and that only can happen when you have safety and trustworthiness in place to begin mm -hmm. with. So I just wanted to highlight that because it just was such a great, a great uh, outline really of the principles of trauma-informed care. So I appreciate that. And just, yeah, what an impactful story too. And this, then the Department of Human Services for the state of Iowa uh, really do try to practice trauma-informed care. Um, I think it's kind of difficult in their capacity, you know, because of the, like, I don't know, the regulations or the state laws or whatever it may be. It's kind of difficult for them, but they try. I mean, they, they truly do try. And um, 
You know, the other thing I was going to tell you guys is that my, my adopted son, it will be 13 in December. And his mom, his biological mom is at my house right now cooking supper. So like, cause so that I don't have to cook supper tonight when I get home, she's been sober two years now. Um, unfortunately she couldn't get it together, um, in time to save the rights to her child. Um, but she's been sober two years now. Um, and I told her when I adopted him that if you have 90 days under your belt, you call me and, and we will, this may about makes me get emotional, um, Mm -hmm. because, um, I adore her. Um, she just reminds me of so much of myself when I was broken and lost, you know? And, uh, so I told her you'd have 90 days when you have 90 days clean and sober, you call me and we'll set up a visit for your son, you know? And she did. And she's been sober, um, every since, um, she, she comes to my house. She stays the weekends at my house. When we go on family vacations, she goes with us. My other son who was also adopted, um, unfortunately his mom is not involved in his life or his parents are not involved in his life, his biological parents. Um, but she is his other mom. So because yeah. he always says, well, JJ's got two moms. I want two moms too. Of course. So she's like, she's like his other mom. So like I said, she's at my house cooking supper as we speak. Mindy, I, I just have to ask, like it, when you're describing these things, it sounds like this community that you have cultivated, right? This this family of choice really, right? You've got the biological, you've got the foster, you've got the adopted, you've got the, the, the mom of the one helping nurture the, the other child, like all of this nurturing, all of this, um, community that you've created, what sustains and feeds you so that you can sustain and nurture this community? I'm going to be honest with you, my job. Yeah. Tell us about that then. My, my job does. I get to see broken, seriously broken people who are just that broken. And, um, I get to see them put their pieces, glue their pieces back together, you know, at 30 days at a time, but, (laughs) but to start to put those back together. And, um, I know that all I needed was someone to believe in me. That's all I needed. Even from the time I was a young girl, all I needed was that one person uh, to tell me you can do it. Um, and and I want to be that person. So that's what feeds me to do. Um, I want to be that person that, re, you know, that that's someone like me remembers letting, you know, letting me curl their hair in sixth grade. You know, I want to be that person, even if it's the smallest things that I can do. And that's what feeds my soul. I think what you're describing is a kind of vicarious resilience, which is not a term that we talk about a whole lot. We talk about vicarious trauma all the time, right? Mm-hmm. How we see trauma and we absorb it and we take it with us. And um, but I think you're describing how you you see healing and that in turn like helps you continue to provide healing and foster resilience. And so I I think that that's uh that's a really important concept, especially for those of us who are professional caregivers. Like we have jobs where we are providing care. Sometimes that's hard to come by because we get mired in the muck sometimes of what we see every day. And it's hard, I think, to to keep turning our attention to those hope inducing kinds of things. So I'm just curious, like what helps you continue to do that? Uh, what helps you not get stuck? in the muck of all the trauma that you see 
I think if you want to know the truth, my two boys. So I've had, I've had born to me, six children, three of them fully emerged in addiction, three of them partially emerged in addiction. And then I have these two little boys. These two little boys have never seen their mom, me high drunk, you know, and any of the, uh, above I've got to be the full potential of a mom um, to them. And I think that's really what my drive is every day. When I leave here and I'm done with you guys, I'm going to, I'm going to football camp. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, I really think that that's my drive is I want these two little boys that I absolutely adore. Um, and the last two of my children that I'm going to raise, cause I'm no longer a foster parent. I the, the two boys are the last. <laughs> and, um, I really want them to be able to see a full capacity of what a, a a good parent is. And and that's really been always been my, I've always just wanted to be a good mom. I've just want, I mean, at the end of the day, above anything else, I just wanted to be a good mom. And so I think that's really what feeds my soul uh, is being able to be um, a, a mentor for, for, you know, people in this corner. And then just to be able to be a good mom and to hear from my son, mom, I love you. You're the best, you know, <laughs> you know, that feeds my soul. So yeah. that's incredible. You're my new role model. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, wow. Yeah. And as you were speaking, I got this almost like a, almost like a picture in my head, you know, of the ways we pay it forward. So there's little young Mindy, right? You with your teacher who let you curl her hair, that small investment of time, but it was so powerful in shaping your life. And then now there's you, adult Mindy, sitting with another child, you know, seeing them and respecting them and caring for them in whatever way that is. And then I just kind of envisioned the future. You know, there's that child someday down the road is going to remember what you did, like you said, and they're going to sit with another child and they're going to, it's the cycle of hope and it's the cycle of resilience and it's a cycle of healing and It goes back to what Andrew said about positive child experiences, you know, in the power of every caring adult, right? We, we hold the power to help heal trauma. One person, one kid, um, the fact that you walked down the street when that boy in your neighborhood was in the midst of probably the worst day of his life, you just walked down the street and you made that decision to help. And in that way, you can't pay back the teacher, right? But you're, you're paying it forward. And I just think that's such a beautiful practice. And I can speak personally um, that there are people in my past that I will never be able to repay for the kindness that they did to me and the ways they cared for me when I was in childhood trauma. And I remember them. Sometimes I see their faces and I, as I'm caring for others, you know, it really does kind of, it empowers and it fuels. That's the word I'm looking for. It fuels the giving, right? It's out of gratitude. It's out of just this deep sense of gratitude. And um, I think our listeners could probably think of someone that took time for them as a child, you know, mm-hmm. and how that might motivate the ways they take time for people now. I will tell you that 12-year-old boy that was being removed calls still calls me mom today. I he he is out, he's off work right now and he's um, got COVID. Um, oh. So he's stuck in the house and he's got COVID and he says, mom, I need soup. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm sorry, son. I can't bring you soup today. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that's amazing. And he's amazing. He's an amazing father. He's got, um, he had some troubles and he went down a bad path for a second. Um, and he, I had to give him some tough love and, but, um, today he is employed. He's getting ready to buy a house. He has, uh, four children. Um, uh, he's an amazing father, an amazing Mm -hmm. father. And he, he will tell you, um, that had that intervention not happened with DHS, his life would not be what it is today. He would probably be on the same path that everybody else um, that didn't get an intervention uh, that lived in that home. Um, Mm -hmm. he would probably have been on the same path, which was prison or death. And yeah, because it really is necessary to interrupt the cycle. Um, because it does, we, we do as human beings, like we just keep doing the, the same things over and over again, unless something comes in and interrupts that, right. Mm-hmm. Changes it up for us somehow. What a gift, what an honor to be part of his story in that yeah, way. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling to know that, you know, he loves me and I love him. And, and that was all by pure coincidence. Like I just was walking in my house you know, at the right time. So, well, and I think you were walking in your house at the right time and your heart and mind had been prepared, uh, by previous experiences, right. True. To have a willingness to be open to this child. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, it seems on, on one level, it seems almost like a kind of magic that happens, but on another level, it seems like, well, of course, why wouldn't we, if we've had that experience of being loved, if we've had that experience of being supported, if we've had that experience of, um, being seen, why wouldn't we want to share that with, with someone who in desperate need of it? Um, and again, it just takes one, one person helping one other person. Yeah to set off that chain reaction. So I think I have one more question and that would be Mindy thinking about other people who, I mean, I know you've spoken in front of a lot of people about your story, but also those who are listening to this podcast interview, what advice would you give somebody who is looking around in their community and they're seeing trauma, they're seeing needs, they're seeing, you know, awful things going on. Uh, what one piece of advice would you give somebody who says, I want to help, but I don't know what to do. I would say I go with my heart. If my heart tells me that it's the right thing to do, then do it. Uh, then do it. I go with my heart, my heart, you know, like I sometimes maybe don't make the best, um, financial decisions because I'm like, Oh, have this shirt, have this $20, sure. have this, you know? <laughs> and then later I have to explain to my husband, like, where did that money go? Well, let me tell you, you know, <laughs> you know, but my heart says to do it. Then I do. So if I see somebody who needs me, like I've had people say to me before, you do realize they've used every system, blah, blah, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, I don't I don't care because I'm not they, doing it. I, I mean, I don't still care. have a need, right? <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> right. It's not like we have a finite number of times we can ask for help. Right. Right. <laughs> um, I don't care. I'll help them. <laughs> yeah. And even in your advice there, I think you're um, pointing to the need for us to actually be able to get quiet and listen to that nudge from our heart. Right. Mm-hmm. If yeah. we're so if we're so overwhelmed, if we're so fatigued, if we're so busy, if we're so, you know, just racing frantically here and there that we don't 
have the capacity to slow down for just a moment and listen for that nudge, uh, do this or don't do this equally important, right? Maybe this isn't the fit for you right now. Maybe it is. Then how, how will we be able to respond to that inner, inner guidance? So that's even, that's kind of a teaching, right? And if someone who has literally eight kids plus more (laughs) can find a way to live so that there's quiet occasionally to be able to hear the leading of the heart, then we all can, right? There's hope for all of us. I believe in the power of integrity. And um, we, we, you know, integrity to me is doing the next right thing, even when nobody's looking. Um, and so oh, say I say that again, say it again. <laughs> I said, I believe in the power of integrity and integrity to me is doing the next right thing, even when nobody's looking. So Mindy, you've shared that you come from a childhood of trauma and poverty. And a lot of the things that have happened to you have been really difficult things. Um, what would you say is the most important thing? that's uh, happened for you? I would say that the most rewarding thing that has ever happened in my life is to be able to teach kids that you don't have to live that way. You Just because you are born that way doesn't mean you have to stay that way. You don't have to live that way. It's been the most rewarding part of my journey. I'm glad we got to talk about that today when we talked about the foster care system and your experiences. Thank you so much. What an incredible and emotional conversation we have shared today with Mindy Davidson. We are so grateful um, to have this time and we have a few takeaways. The first one is the power of one caring adult. Those positive childhood experiences that we have where in spite of everything else going on, just one person took time with us, saw us, showed caring to us and the way that that can really mitigate the impact of adverse childhood experiences. Then our second takeaway is about the really incredible paradigm shift that's happening in foster care, uh, at least in some places. And and we're excited to see that spread in other places, but how trauma-informed care, how trauma-informed practices really are being embedded into the work that foster parents and those workers in the system are are embracing and how the the goals have shifted so that it's not just fostering the kids but it's also about fostering the parents and working toward uh, skill development skill building with parents and reunification and being open to having the biological parents come into your home and provide care alongside you as the foster parent, uh, just really incredible things. We were very struck by all the ways we saw trauma-informed principles in that uh, story that Mindy shared with us. Yes. And the third takeaway has to do with compassion, satisfaction, with being filled up by your work, with vicarious resilience, you seeing it in others and then inspiring your own resilience and really the profound impact of having a hope-inspiring job where you get to go and be a part of something bigger that brings recovery into the world. And also being part of that chain, we talked about, you know, you can't always pay it backwards, but you can pay it forwards. And so someone helped you, you help someone, that person one day down the road helps another and so on. And then our fourth takeaway today really is an encouragement also for our listeners to follow your heart. When you see a need, slow down, listen, listen to the nudges that you get, pay attention to what the needs are, uh, what's behind the behavior that you might see, uh, asking the trauma-informed question, I wonder what happened, instead of what is wrong with them, 
and doing the next right thing, even when nobody's looking. So the power of integrity there. Mindy, thank you so much for your insights and your stories and just being you. Is there anything else you want to share with us as we depart today? Um, no, but I I totally appreciate um, you guys asking me to do this. It was it, it was fun. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. We want to remind you that you can check out the Mid-America ATTC website for more information on services and supports. We want to remind you that we have our virtual room of refuge where you can find a variety of support for your own well-being. You can access our YouTube channel. You can subscribe to our newsletter, Conscious Connections, there. And again, thanks for joining us. It is our hope that where you work and where you live, this podcast will offer you practical support for the practice of trauma-informed caring. 